City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres of tar and cement, and uh, and Meg has turned the uh, mics on this morning. Meg, morning. Well morning. <laughs> <laughs> Meg's here, I'm Kevin Healy, that's Meg Kimber, and uh, Andy Britt's in the studio direct there. He's waving, and that's pretty useful on radio. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it's the fifth Wednesday of the month, so again, we haven't got a specific topic today, but we're going to do um, two topics, catch up with a couple of people. One is, uh, the first guest is going to be Dave Kerrin, um, who's, uh, again, well, becoming one of our regular regulars, well-known in union circles and in political circles, active in the, currently active in a number of campaigns, including, say, Vic Market and uh, other things. But we're going to talk about a meeting that was held in, in Sydney in, a, in what was described as luxury penthouse apartment uh, in Circular Quay. Uh, Anthony Pratt, Australia's richest man, had a meeting of Australia's richest people and others last Friday, uh, last Thursday. It was published in the Fairfax Media on Friday because the Fairfax Media, in fact, co-sponsored the event. But it was an event to talk about how they can get their hands on the $2.7 trillion pool of money in workers' superannuation funds and that, suggesting that now is the time for super funds to invest in big business and uh, give the money to them. So um, we'll talk to Dave and see whether he thinks that's a bloody good idea or not. Um, (laughs) It's an even money bet, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) And it it is the Dave show today because the second half we're going to talk to Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation about a number of issues around uranium, which he's their anti-uranium spokesperson, of course, but also uh, the rehabilitation of mines, we touched on that last time he was on and didn't get very far with it and said we'd repeat it in a few weeks. So we're going to follow up on that today and the costs of rehabilitating mines across the country. There's also been a, a, a dispute inside the Minerals Council of Australia where their executive, chief executive recently resigned after BHP um, carried on a bit about things and there's there's events happening there in terms of their stand on coal and their stand on trying to have have um, environmental groups lose their tax status, etc. So uh, oh. we'll talk to Dave about some of those issues as well. In fact, they've written um, they've written to the Australian Conservation Foundation, among other environment groups, this week, so Dave might know something about mm, that. That so, would be interesting. Yeah, I remember so. last time Dave was on, it was really interesting, talking yeah, about the, yeah. uran- the global uranium, you know, s- how it's selling in the world and who's buying it and who's selling it. And who's not, <laughs> yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Cup of tea, everybody? No, Andy won't, but... No. I'll have one. Yeah, right. Thanks. We've changed. It's a slight change today. It's just a straight. Uh, it's a straight green tea today. That sounds perfect. Yes, yeah, I've tea. I've stopped drinking coffee and I've replaced it with green tea. Oh well, there you are. Oh, well, yeah. you're, you're getting a straight green tea today. That's excellent. Ah, there you are. Thank you. Right. I hope people heard all that. Um, before we go to Dave, and we'll go to him pretty shortly. Uh, the first day, this two day, Dave Kerrin. I said to Dave Kerrin yesterday, if I ask you a question about uranium, you know I've slipped, yeah. in, slipped into the wrong half of the show. And he said, well, I'll answer it anyway. Uh, so, That's the kind of guests we have. These, these people do Up talk. for anything. <laughs> so uh, I just thought, um, I thought it was pretty nasty. When I first read it and then I realised it wasn't being nasty, when I read the front page of the Herald Sun yesterday, let's start with the Herald Sun, <laughs> and it's got a headline saying, Hooray Harry, I'm not a nice man and I thought here's this prince you know part of our our number one family and they're saying he's not a nice man but it was two stories they had to try and crowd the prince and the TV bloke there who's being accused of all sorts of things into one page and so it reads on like Harry's not a nice man but he is he's a lovely bloke and he's I suppose well I'm not going to ask you Meg because you but I'm going to ask Andy you'd be pretty excited about the royal engagement wouldn't you Andy I'm proud 
he's thrilled. He says, "Yes, he's why, thrilled." Why yeah. will you not ask me? But you will ask. Well, I think him. people would say, "Oh, he's you a royalist." Could, no, you'd say yeah. that's almost sexist. You're asking, you're oh, asking the okay. woman about something, and you know, you, oh. etc. But and I know, and I also know that you're a you know deep follower of the royal family. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Megan, your 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 yeah. answer would be biased. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I'd say just more bringing joy and happiness to people the world <laughs> over. Well, actually, this morning on the news they said, and this is, I don't know if you caught up with this, and it's very exciting, they're going to get married in Windsor Castle, and yeah. they said they both uh, they both love Windsor Castle now. I don't know how long she's known it for, but she loves it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really, <laughs> she's also, she could run into we the same... She could run into the same trouble as some of our pollies because she also has to get a get US, UK a citizenship before the wedding. Oh, um, oh yeah, gosh, so, really? Yeah, and, and she's got to convert to the Anglican Church as well. So, um, yeah. What church is she with? Oh, they, just, they just said Protestant. It was on the news this morning. Oh. So you'll notice how I listen to these things and follow them up beautifully. Oh. Uh, yes, the, the Australian government, on a, perhaps, well, I can't think of a more serious matter than that, actually. But The uh, wedding. The wedding. It's pretty and we serious. And we won't comment on the, the bloke, the telly bloke. I, I must admit, I mean, I, I've seen lots of promos for his show, and the promos make sure you don't watch things, but I must, I have to admit I've never ever seen his show ever, that bloke. Really? No. Well, no I grew no. up with it. Did but you? But I like oh. the way that you said you won't comment on it and then immediately commented on well, it. I did, I did. That's right. <laughs> 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 I'm like Dave's answer yesterday. <laughs> we comment on everything here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't help ourselves. Uh, the, this story that came out in the last couple of days where Sea Shepherd has taken the Australian government um, to the Freedom of Information um, people, um, a five-year battle to have some um, evidence um, um, shown to mm-hmm. them, they, they, this show, showing the, the harpoon killing a whale. Mm. Um, the Japanese and, Yeah, whaling. and five years they fought not to show it. And the argument was uh, it could harm relations with Japan. And, of course, it's been argued, therefore, that they're prioritising, and this is what this already says, prioritising diplomatic interests over protecting the whales and representing the views of Australians, etc. Mm. Um, now, also, in 2013, when in opposition, Greg Hunt, who was then opposition environment spokesman, said um, Labor was turning a blind eye to whaling in our waters. That's Some people with disabilities in this week would argue blind eye is a bit thing, but never mind. Mm. Um, we should have a customs vessel in the Southern Ocean. Now, the, now the government, of course, they don't do that and they won't mm. do it and um, Sea Shepherd has put not in the article I know Sea Shepherd has said for financial reasons it can't do it this year and so <clears throat> really? the Japanese whaling fleet effectively has carte blanche to wander around Australian waters and, and knock off whales so it's pretty awful mm. given that we went to court and won a case under the previous government and um, they've just mm. virtually ignored it or found ways around it mm. yeah so the footage has been released now. Yeah, it's it? been released, and apparently it shows shocking the way you know the harpoon hits the whale and what happens to it, and that's what they're trying to avoid because it's mm. you know it's obviously incredible cruelty. I thought something yeah. had happened that um, had stopped or reduced Japanese whaling. Well, Australia so, took them to court, and right. um, and in fact the then Attorney General and current distant uh, mm. uh, Mark Mark Dreyfus he mm. uh, he led the case in mm. the world court mm. and won it um, but since then they've found other ways to get around it saying they're oh. still doing you know it's still scientific etc oh. so as a fair year unfortunately it's all going on mm. um, just another interesting aspect of where um, while we we are said to have and I think in many ways we do have the the strongest anti-tobacco laws in the world mm. um this probably couldn't happen here, though. Uh, in America, um, their courts do two strange things at time, times. A smoking kills an average 1,200 Americans daily. Tobacco companies admitted in court-ordered advertisements published in newspapers. The corrective statement started appearing 11 years after a 2006 ruling, so they fought it for that long, wow. that the companies had deceived the public for decades on the health dangers of smoking. The ad continued that more people die every year from smoking than from murder, AIDS, suicide, drugs, car crashes and alcohol combined with the last word highlighted. So, Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's something. I that's ads that's, that are going out in states in America. Yeah, yeah. So uh, That's pretty yeah, intense. It is, it is, isn't it? And it's good to see the, 
The poor bit dears of truth, being yeah. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. poor dears having to admit to something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Must hurt. Just before we go to Dave, we'll go to Dave as soon as I say this, but there's an interesting situation developed in America. There's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, and this was established um, a few years ago in the wake of the global financial crisis to police credit cards, auto loans and consumer finance products. And the big banks and everyone else are complaining that it's getting out of hand. It's actually regulating them and making them do things, and it's awful. Terrible. Anyway, the director has resigned, um, and um, and he he when he resigned appointed his his two IC um, to act in his stead. But meanwhile, Trump has now appointed another bloke to act as head, another bloke who's actually. Um, his um, his office of management and budget director, who's an arch conservative, yeah. uh, and he's been put there for the obvious reasons why Sensing Trump would put him there. Yes, 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 change appointments. By but the now they've got this real mess on their hands because currently there's two people claiming to be in charge of the place. <laughs> so, so no one knows. No one knows what's going on. It's, oh. it's all madness. Okay, look, we're going to get on to the Dave. We'll take. Uh, we'll go to Dave Karen first. first. We'll Dave. have a yarn to him in, in about a uh, couple of minutes. Take okay. a quick break. I'm playing with teapot handles here. Um, Dave Karen on the line. Dave, um, Dave, just before we open up, you did have a you had a choice of two picket lines. Which one are you at? Oh, I'm at the uh, I'm at the MUA uh, Community Assembly uh, down uh, down in East Web uh, Web Dock. Yeah. Oh, well, so. Uh, and what yeah. are they What are they taking action about? So, uh, company uh, set up a, uh, a phony deal. They're uh, trying to force members onto uh, a deal which would cut their their wages by in excess of forty percent, um, get rid of penalty rates, etc. So, uh, very similar type of dispute to um, Exxon Mobil, um, and now uh, also a similar dispute to the uh, case of the sacked NUW workers on. Um, on Coot Island just yesterday where they were trying to cut the workers' wages by $20,000 a year. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly something afoot and I would I would argue that it's probably in the political realm where they're trying to make uh, our unions uh, look, look nasty and horrible and, yeah... So yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a bit of a setup. Really. I was going to yeah. raise this a little later in the interview, but now, now you're just very briefly in passing. Um, Jeffrey Flick, federal court judge, last week he um, he in fact found for the ETU in a similar case where three workers for one key resources, which provides provides workers to BHP and Glencore and big companies. Um, they had three workers appoint an EBA, uh, approve one, which was absolutely dreadful. Uh, and yeah. he overthrew it on the grounds. It's the first time it's happened, of course. He said there is. Uh, he said there was considerable difficulty in the idea that three employees with a very confined employment experience and covered by a limited number of awards could approve an agreement that would cover employees falling within since such a diverse range of awards. Um, and he actually found in favour of the union in that case. Yep. Which, Sorry. Well, I was saying he found in favour of the union, which um, yeah. is the first time, because that's how they do it. They get three or four people to approve something, and then, as we know, they then extend it to the entire national workforce. Exactly right. And, and, and you know, they... I mean, this is a really classic case of just a, a stage, a stage um, piece. Like here at the moment, um, I'm on a picket line, a community assembly that's got, like, one, two, three, four, five, six... Seven, eight, nine, eleven trucks lined up. Um, they they wouldn't get that much work. This particular company in a week, but all these trucks are lined up here so they can get the camera shots. Yeah. So you know this is just such a political setup, and uh, without organisations like yours, like 3CR, helping us out, um, you know we yeah we just uh, we wouldn't uh, be able to let our people know and. So we're asking people through 3CR to make sure you, you get down to uh, East Web Dock and uh, put your name on the uh, roster. Uh, we don't know whether this will be a long dispute or a short one, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah, all right. so now, uh, Kevin, I'm sorry. Uh, we, we've got a bit of a crisis. Yeah. I'm, I'm going oh. to have to go. Oh, all right. We haven't I'm, got I'm, on, I'm, we, we haven't got on I'm, the substantive I'm, issue yet. But, uh, I, 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 I'm sorry, mate. Okay. Yeah. All right, it's Dave. Time. Fair enough. Okay. See, see you. Bye. Ah, yes, the, the terror of picket lines. Well, let's... Um, 
Let's talk, Meg, anyway, about the other item we were going to talk about. Yes. Which is that these billionaires, and that they included um, they included our number one rich person, Anthony Pratt, who's, um, whose wealth mainly comes from the fact that his mum and dad, um, mum and dad um, one night um, um, had him, really, or oh. had him eventually. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I wondered where that was going. Yes. Oh. Well, I think, well, I think his mum and dad played a role in his wealth, let's put it oh, that way. Okay. I, I mean, certainly he worked his way up from the top. But, from um, being born. Yes, from, from the... being, being born. Yep. I mean, helped him a hell of a lot, <laughs> as it did with Gina, who was also there. Mm-hmm. Um, Lindsay Fox was there, a very kind, gentle-looking man, Lindsay. Um, and there was other chief executives all over the place, the big banks, um, and um, Rod Ennington, the chairman of Infrastructure Australia, who's also chair of a number of big companies. He's the man who told, the, who did the report for the state government and recommended the East-West Link and lots of freeways. Mm. If they had someone else do the report, they might have got a different result. Mm. Macquarie Bank was there, the big banks, and mm. um, and of course because he 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 came, he was the the founder of the current superannuation scheme, Paul Keating, when he was treasurer. Paul mm. was there advising people. Really? And uh, John Fraser, secretary of the treasury. I imagine that um, when the big business being the town snapped their fingers, the government bodies rush in and do what they have to do. What capacity was Paul Keating there? Like, is he working for... He was there because he, he, could, he knows a lot about super and what's needed. And Paul said, in fact, that... Um, that it, you know, it's really time has come for super to invest much more in um, lots of things, um, and um, so they were all they were all there. Interesting. Uh, yes. And, and then the Age reported on it. Well, the the Age and the Financial Review, in fact, co-sponsored it. The Financial Review said we co-sponsored it, and the Age said we co-sponsored it. It was obviously Fairfax generally that co-sponsored it, mm-hmm. um, and it was held in. It was held in Anthony Pratt's what they described as luxury penthouse apartment and circular key. Now, given that he, his family's in Melbourne, his mum, Jeannie, of course, is out at uh, Kew, uh, and he lives mostly in America where his business is mostly these days with, with, um, with Vizzy. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and, um, mm. and yet he's got, he's got – so he's lucky to have an apartment in Sydney, I suppose, to drop into when he wants to. And they did have a – you'd be pleased to know that he did provide a bit of lunch for them. Um, as you can imagine, it would have been just the odd sandwich thrown out. Yeah. Uh, it was the odd sandwich that did involve um, the top-class fillet steak, lobster mm. – all the things that go with it, and bottles of um, Grange Hermitage they drink. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. nice. At about seven hundred these days a bottle. So, huh? Yeah. I don't understand uh, what they're getting. What? Why are they reporting this? Because well, they're reporting it because they're well. I think I was going to talk. What we're going to talk to Dave about, but mm. in recent, in the last year or two. Kelly O'Dwyer, who's the Minister for Financial Services or something she's called, or whatever the title is, mm. she's been pushing very hard to change the laws around superannuation because there's now $2.7 trillion in funds. It's the biggest Yeah, it's this massive pool of money. In the world. And business looks at it and says, God, we haven't got our hands on that yet. Let's work out how to do it. But they don't. They do, don't they? Because super is investing in, I mean, well, in the stock market. It's so investing all over the place. We don't yeah. know where it is exactly. No. Unless... Well, well, we sort of do in the, I suppose, workers do. And it's, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation because I believe when you own shares in something, you're exploiting the workers. So you've got workers' money investing in things in which they're exploiting themselves, as mm. I see it, or exploiting other workers. Yeah, it's but a, yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, it's compulsory, isn't it? So it's you don't yeah. get a choice about whether no. or not you invest no. in the stock market. So if you have an ethical or philosophical objection to that. You, mm. are, you what can you do? There are some funds that claim they only invest in ethical things, whatever that is. Yep. Um, but, but there's still yeah. again no specifics, really. No, is there? no, no. That's so, what I've got mine in. And the industry funds where you've got um, union members on the board, half union, half bosses. Uh, boards, they're performing far, far better than the funds run by the banks and the financial institutions. They're actually mm. getting better returns because one assumes the reason is they're not charging the fees the banks and financial institutions charge to make profit because mm. the others aren't actually operating for profit as for such. Profit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but Kelly O'Dwyer wants to change that so that the so it, so it, they have independent directors, she's calling them, but that means bankers, you know, the, the independent directors from her point of view are the, the usual suspects in the banks and the financial institutions oh. who are earning less than, now than the other lot but wants to get rid of the union people off the boards. 
because they see this great pool of money they need to get their hands on. And I think a further development of that now is this meeting last week where they got all the big, you know, the big end of town together and said, yes, its time has come. In fact, Eddington said the time has come, and they both used the same term. Um, Mm. um, Anthony Pratt used the same term, the time has come for super funds to invest in big business. Mm. And they want them to buy bonds. They want them to loan them money. The argument is that banks won't loan more than a, a fairly short time, and then it might get rolled over. Uh, because of risks involved. Now, given there's risks involved, then why is super money going to go into it? But yeah. they're saying super has the capacity to give long-term 10, 20, 30-year loans. Mm. Um, but the word risk comes up. The, the banks say, well, it's risky for them, but apparently it's not risky for workers' <laughs> money. Um, so it's um, it's an interesting situation. So uh, is it, are they saying it's a difference between, um, at the moment, uh, super money is invested in businesses that are listed on the stock exchange, and they're proposing that you yeah. invest super money in businesses through well, bonds and other means well, loans, through banks. Well, you actually loan them money to it too, so they can expand, etc. So, so it sort of changes yeah, the area where yeah, the money is invested yeah. so in. So you're not, not investing in a share as such, you're actually loaning the money. Interesting. Um, which they, of course, will pay back with interest oh. if, if nothing desperate happens in the next 10 or 20 years and they go out of business or something, exactly. which is a bit oh, of a problem. Or something like the subprime mortgage crisis that happened in America. Happens yes, here. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So there are risks involved, but big business, of course, says it's all very safe. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah, because they're too big to fail, which is exactly right. what happened that's in right. America. When exactly, I've, I've told many times on here this, this terrible. There was a lovely cartoon at that time in the uh, Financial Review of all things, yeah. the Alex column, which is a very Alex is a cartoon that. The, the main people are bankers at, in in the city in London, oh, but yeah. it, but it sends them up mercilessly. Yeah. And uh, there was a lovely one with one of the one of the bankers sitting around the table with mum and dad and the little girl at the table, and they said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And she said, oh, "I want to be too big to fail." <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there you are. Oh, but uh, So anyway, but whether they could well fail. But Paul Keating played a key role in that he's going along with them totally and says, in fact, he totally agrees that you know, super funds ought to be investing in business and, and investing in terms of these loans and things. So you mm. actually hand them the money. Mm. Uh, the, there, is, there are other problems raised which, um, you know, they say uh, you get over like a bit of liquidity problem in that people will be taking money out of these funds at various times and as the population oh. lives longer, yep. there'll be more demand on them so mm. there could be some liquidity problems. But nonetheless, if we get our hands on the money first, what's it matter if workers mm. don't get it later, I suppose? That's, that's fair enough. The, the, other, um, the other point... Um, we were going to talk about, and which we will now talk about, mm. is, and we've talked about it a number of times on this program anyway, in relation to several things, mm. is that even though, um, even though workers have all this money, there's two point seven trillion, where it is being invested is being invested in in um, property and shares, etc. Mm. None of it is really being invested in what we might consider socially useful areas, yeah, uh, like public housing, for yeah. instance. Now. Yeah. Uh, if you talk to, I've talked to some union people on these boards to ask these questions, and mm. they say, "Well, we have under the law fiduciary duties that we have to observe, and therefore to the shareholder, to, well, to the, yeah, to the to the well, to the members, to the to the workers whose money you're handling. Oh, right, right. Um, yep. And therefore, um, we have to get the best returns, and these things mightn't have the best, best returns, returns. etc. All that sort of stuff." Uh, but nonetheless, mm. uh, for instance, CBUS is one of the biggest biggest property developers in the country. You know, it's mm-hmm. got all these properties in the city. It's got big things. It's building in Docklands, in, mm-hmm. in the city, in Sydney, all over the place. And it's building these big places that are mixed residential, commercial, office-type you know, office mm-hmm. and retail mm-hmm. developments, mm-hmm. all of which are the upper end of the t- market. None of it supplies any affordable even, let alone public or, you know, housing of any mm. sort, of that of that sort. Mm. Uh, and there are all sorts of other areas where they could be investing um, mm. to uh, in, in socially useful stuff, socially useful infrastructure for the community, for instance, where there are returns. 
Uh, and so that's another area that really needs to be looked at because it's, it's a question, well, the whole question of socially useful. Jack, Jack Mundy, mm. the, you know, who was involved with the Green Bands in Sydney back in the 70s, one of his mantras was, see, our workers should do socially useful work and workers in the defence industry should refuse to do that work and convert the factories into making other things or <laughs> car factories converted into building trams and trains and buses and mm. all that sort of thing. Um, and that's the sort of area where it needs to go as well and where Dave's taking quite an interest because, as you know, or you probably don't know, you may know, he's been involved in Earthworker as well and they are, they're, they're working on, on worker-controlled factories which are building mm-hmm. things like solar... Mm. Solar hot water systems and, and and things. So in Australia, or was it? Or? Yeah, they're here. Yeah. They're, they're down in Gippsland. They actually got a factory. Um, they've got a factory at Morwell now that's developing. Uh, they began with a company in Dandenong, which they sort of was. I think it was hitting the rocks a bit. And they moved mm. in and and helped and took it over. Yeah. Uh, but they're and they're providing. They're actually provide. They're actually uh, producing products, and they're you know, part of part of what they're doing is uh, providing free systems for low-income people and mm, um, all great. that sort of stuff. So, yeah, That's so, so good. Doing really a lot good of work. people are priced out of yeah. the sustainable energy market. Pretty about that. We're not going to get time this year now. We've only got two more programs. We've got mm. one next week, transport next week. At how We've switched housing back to the second Wednesday, and that's our last program for the year in two weeks today. But we'll um, have to line Dave up for next. But we'll get year. him up and we'll talk about this again because it's going to be ongoing. But it's it's mm. part of a real push. It started with Kelly O'Dwyer and the government wanting to change the nature of the boards and structure of the boards, and right. now they're moving really into getting their hands on all that money. And and mm. of course the banks are saying, well, we're we're happy to facilitate the super funds carrying out the loans and help them with all the things they need to be a, a virtually act as a bank. Well, they're not prepared to, to loan it themselves, mm. but it also means they get closer to taking over the super funds as part of that process. I suspect so. It's a it's a major problem. Mm. Uh, it's a, there's, as I say, I think there's two major problems. One is that the big end of town wants to get his hands on all that workers' money, and secondly, mm. I think all that workers' money should be used for better purposes than it's being used. Yeah. So there you are. All right. Any other comments on that? Anyone? No. No, we'll see how it unfolds, I guess. I'm going to go and read yeah. that article now and I'll be more informed. Well, I've got a heap of them here, actually. Yeah. Um, so you can, uh, you, can, you can take your pick. Um, so uh, anyway, that's that. And uh, well, look, we'll take a break, come back and we'll get on to Dave Sweeney and hope he hasn't got a picket line going and he has to leave. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Ah, Georgia Lee and the Yarra River Blues there, and um, we've got Dave Sweeney on the line. That should um, get us out of the blues because we'll cheer people up no end about mining and uranium and lots of good things. Dave Sweeney, of course, is the anti-uranium campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. And Dave, I noticed that the um, I noticed that the um, Minerals Council of Australia has written this week. I don't know if you've seen the letter to, to the head of your ACF. Um, putting their case for why they, they really aren't a bad body, they really don't necessarily just push coal or just want community environment groups to lose their tax status, etc. They're really a very fine bunch of people. That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't seen that letter. I've, I've actually just come back from uh, a couple of days in Canberra, so I haven't seen any correspondence or heard, uh, heard much about that, Kevin. But, um, you know, you'll be aware and listeners will be aware that there's been a fairly, uh, you know, escalated, elevated uh, bit of uh, to and fro and tension between environment and uh, civil society organisations and the Mineral Council of Australia recently. Um, and that's all about the MCA is very actively and very aggressively trying to, um, to basically reduce the political space in Australia. And it's so it's uh, doing that by um, really trying to uh, put a gag on the on the um, on the activities of of groups that are registered charities or, or that are in receipt or eligible for tax deductibility, um, and they really are trying to step that up and make it so that um, you can you can plant trees, but you can't argue that they shouldn't be knocked down. As an example, you know mm-hmm. they they're really trying to mm-hmm. to squash that space. 
You know, they fed the letter. Well, I'll tell you something, what's, something what's in the letter because it was reported in the Financial Review last um, Monday, a couple of days ago. The letter goes on to explain and justify the MCA's position on a suite of issues from the wreck to the need for new coal-fired power stations and to sturdily reject claims that it has obstructed progress on climate-related legislation and public policy or that it is in any way out of step with the Australian community. So there you are. Okay, well, I think it would need to be a pretty long letter um, because it is it is significantly out of step. Where, you know, the MCA has been uh, high, highly critical of the shift towards, um, you know, renewable energy. It has it has placed um, uh, again and again. It's promoted coal at every opportunity. Um, it's uh, it's been. Uh, um, aggressively, unsurprising when you see some of the people in it, but aggressively pro-nuclear mm. and to a point that's way out of line, not just with the Australian people's position on that one, but with many of its significant member groups. Like it's been promoting nuclear power, it's been promoting international radioactive waste dumping in um, Australia, um, which is a view that's been publicly and roundly um, um criticised and rejected by BHP Billiton, which is the biggest producer of uranium in Australia. Mm. So it, it, it is out of step with increasingly with a number of its own major players, and it is significantly out of step with the Australian view. Like, the MCA is trying to get it now, Kevin and, and Meg, so that only 10% of, of, a, of money uh, that an NGO has can be used for... Uh, any activity that can be broadly defined as activism or advocacy, like ten percent of of an already really constrained resource set for, uh, you know, talking about these things, for doing political advocacy, for doing, um, you know, even even sort of theatre piece protests that highlight an issue and generate some discourse. Or even, um, I presume, taking court cases would be included even in that, wouldn't it? Very, they're very, very down on what they see as green, you know, lawfare. And um, they're very happy to take um, legal action uh, consistently. The, the, the mining industry is a very litigious sector, mm-hmm. um, but they don't want anyone else to have access. And that is a, a massive thing. They're trying on a policy level to get what they call the one-stop shop so you get one approval that covers the full suite of activities that a company's involved in at a project. They're um, doing a whole range of things to try and curtail the principal bit of federal environmental legislation, the uh, EPBC, the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. It's a mouthful and it's pretty flawed, but it is it is sort of the, the keystone, the cornerstone of environmental protection and assessment legislation in Australia, and they are consistently white-anting that. The other thing that's really odd is that they are pushing really hard that um, that no foreign donor can donate to an Australian civil society group or charity. Now, they're trying to do that because, um, you know, some of the groups active, particularly in, in the uh, anti-coal and anti-fracking campaigns, have received some money from international supporters, like, and why not? We all live in one shared Mm. planet. The irony of all of this, though, Meg and and Kevin, is that the Australia Institute took a look at some of the books and some of the numbers of the Australian mining industry, Mm. and they found, they came up with the figure that they're over 85, they're 86% foreign-owned, and the capital flows are massive. And they're putting all this effort into stopping a couple of US foundations funding activity in this country, it's really extraordinary and it also is really threatening because if you do that, if, if a conservative government says, yes, this suits our political ideology and agenda, and they put that sort of block up, that not only hurts an environment organisation, it has a profound effect on many Indigenous groups that and, and, and charities that seek funding offshore, it has a profound effect in possibly unintended consequence, but a really adverse consequence on health and medical research, charities, and so many more. So this is this is dangerous stuff. It's ideologically driven stuff. It's got a nasty edge. Mm-hmm. And it's all about that not respecting that we live in a, a country where there's a plurality of views and a contest of ideas and a struggle, not just for hearts and minds, but hearts and minds. 
and um, and we you know we work in that space. We respect that space. The MCA is trying to clamp that space down and see you know criticism or contest as as dissent and um, you know a, a pre-terror culture. Mm. Not unrelated to that, we in the first half of the program we were talking about the meeting at Anthony Pratt's apartment last Thursday where the big end of town discussed how it can get its hands on the $2.7 trillion of workers' super funds um, by turning them into a bank which can loan them long term. Um, it's, it's not unrelated to all that, is it, in many ways? No, look, it's, it's looking at, at basically um, you know, privatising public assets and and removing uh, public input. You know, the MCA push is about we want to maximise the amount that we can rip and ship and we don't want anybody getting in the way and we will do what we can um, behind the scenes in Canberra to, to stop that. And if we're looking at respect of influence, you know, like the MCA, um, you know, there was a, an interesting piece by Michael West, you know, the finance journal in Crikey recently. He followed lobby groups over the last three years. And the big end of town lobby groups, mining, banking, big pharma, property, they raised just shy of $2 billion in the last three years. He's put that as a spend and, and a lobbying spend to those sectors of $4 million per politician per year. Now, that's an extraordinary amount of ability to knock on doors, fund dinners, mm. you know, clink glasses, make gifts, uh, invite people to seminars or workshops or briefings, etc., etc., etc. And so the political influence of that is powerful, it's, per- it's pervasive and it's poisonous. It really is unhealthy. So we don't mind from the NGO perspective increased scrutiny, increased accountability. We do mind. Um, absolutely mind being told that people of Australian people who, who support a group like ACF or Friends of the Earth or support a group like Lock the Gate and give up some of their hard earned to a group, they go in with their eyes wide open. They know what that group's there. There's no cover up about it. Um, and, and to say that no, you can't do this. You can no longer do this. You can plant trees. You can do a school kids program that we vet, but, um, you can't take action to stop Australia being like, for example, the biggest exporter of, of dirty fuel in the form of uranium and, and um, coal. That's, mm. that's uh, ridiculous and unacceptable. So the Minerals Council of Australia, is their primary focus on lobbying in Canberra? Or... Uh, their, their, primary, their primary focus is, is, yeah, they would say making a regulatory uh, framework mm-hmm. that is conducive to business. Yeah. So basically, they, they're keen to cut red, green and black tape. Right. And basically, the, the line really runs, Meg, that Australia is a, is a mineral-rich region. The resource sector um, provides uh, jobs and economic opportunity. We're good at what we do. Get out of the way and let us do it, and there will be a trickle-down effect and benefit. Hmm. Now, that. That's the line. They pursue it with with considerable um, considerable vigour, mm. um, and there's there's a lot of there are a lot of uh, really quite driven true believers in the MCA. Um, there's a lot of people that for whom it's a you know it's a good it's a good lurk, it's a good pay packet. But, but there are some really true believers within there that mm. really hold to that. Mm. They talk about you know energy poverty and they believe it. But uh, when you look at the figures and all that, the the way to address those things is is fast deployable, cheap deployable renewables in developing nations. It's not building coal or mm-hmm. nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so they push that. They're very adept at that. They work. They have state um, affiliate uh, branches and, and groups. So they work at a state level. They do lots of work into all sorts of inquiries and submission processes and Senate processes, and they draft and drive mm. uh, regulatory and, and legislative changes. They basically try very often to write the rules that govern the operations of the Australian mining industry. Right. 
Yeah, and in fact, part of the again what they said in last week, um, talking about Finkel, they were they were accused of undermining the Finkel report, which be hard to do because I think the government's done it itself. But anyway, um, that wondered how Finkel could announce a technology-neutral approach and yet a breath or two later rule out new, high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power. Do you wonder about that yourself, Dave? Oh, look, it's it's uh, uh, the, the, the um, re- revisiting of these arguments again and again, you know, like high-efficiency coal power, uh, new small modular nuclear reactors, um, this, that, and the other. It's it is just this extraordinary impediment on where we need to be. You know, like I think most people get it. There's a million roofs in Australia that have got solar panels on them. Now, you know that that is there. No question. If you look at all the indices of of cost curves, recovery, expenditure, etc., on renewables, the renewable price is coming greatly down, renewable production ramping greatly up and um, uranium and coal are are flatlining and under pressure and are increasingly adrift with social licence and people are seeing the very real, the very real impacts. You know, climate change is not a political uh, position. See, I think that's one of the things with some in the MCA that is fundamental to this. Mm. They see uh, a lot of talk around environmental impacts, human and social impacts of operations, they see those things as rhetoric points or, or stalking horses for people that have an anti-development um, analysis. They will use anything. They'll jump on a, uh, uh, an Aboriginal concern, a cultural concern. They'll jump on you know, human rights and now they've leapt on environment and they've swamped climate change. So they don't see those things actually, I think, at a deep level, as real, they see them as debating points to be negated. Um, and I think more and more, you know, like, listeners to CR, it's, it's a reasonably self-editing audience. So, like, you could, you could be pretty confident that people listening to this show and driving this show know this stuff. Mm. But if you look outside, if you look at the wider world, more and more people are seeing that things are different, that, you know, the weather patterns are different, that things aren't what they used to be, that this is weirder, that this is worse. And you can see that people have a really deep desire to, um, to take some steps to make sure that, you know, their kids and the next generation have a, have a fair crack at a habitable planet. Mm. We look at things like 50% of the Great Barrier Reef bleaching and dying. Like, that's in our generation. Like, one more time of that, and you don't swim and see Nemo in coral forever again. Like, they're profound losses, and people get that. And that's why there's such broad coalitions of people saying no to things like Adani Mm. and yes to things like renewable and clean energy. Mm. And so I think the MCA is profoundly out of step because they see those things as people are misled or fear-filled or they have a deep, hard left, hard, deep green anti-development agenda, and we've got to cut them off at the knees, we've got to circumvent them, we've got to ring-fence them. Mm. And they're sort of like standing against, you know, an, an inevitable and absolutely important tide of, of a desire for change. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The, we, we, we were going to talk about, and let's, get, let's move on to it, in fact, because um, we've only got about 10 minutes left, but rehabilitation, we got onto it last time and didn't get very far because time ran out, but... Um, We've talked about it a few times. The rehabilitation, the cost to the public of what these mines around the country do um, in terms of what happens when they stop. You know, I reckon you've summed up the rehabilitation story in your introduction there, Kevin. Right. We've well, got onto we'll it. Move on. we, we, got, we got onto it. We got onto it. We did a bit, but we ran out of time. And that's pretty much what's going on. There are 50,000 legacy mines in Australia. 50,000. Now, some of them are old quarries. They're not too dramatic. Some of them are absolute nightmares. Um, they are, you know, uranium projects. They are, they are heavy coal projects. They, there's fly ash. There's cyanide. There's mercury. There's acid mine drainage. They, they are combinations of cocktails which are just a nightmare. And they are costly, expensive, complex engineering and remedial works. And there is a profound lack of overarching strategy 
overarching prioritisation, resources, etc., etc. There's an interesting thing going on now, and it's hopefully will focus some attention on it, Kevin. That's a there's a Commonwealth um, a Senate inquiry. The Senate's Environment Committee has an inquiry into whether the rehabilitation and regulatory framework is adequate in Australia. Now, ACF and others have, have put in submissions saying, you know, it's clearly not. Um, many of the mining advocacy and PR groups have put in submissions saying it's too onerous and we're great. Um, but um, the, the facts that are coming up are that there's a wildly unbudgeted for uh, cost liability there. And what happens is that same sort of thing about, you mentioned before about the superannuation. It, in, in this case, it's a private operation and private profit. And when it no longer is profitable or when the commodity is finite and exhausted, um, it's walk-away time. And then it becomes a public burden, it becomes a public cost, it becomes a hazard to, to country and communities. And um, so we, we really do think that there needs to be... Um, a real difference in how mining is done, how preparation for rehabilitation is done. There needs to be... The single biggest thing is that there needs to be money, not promises, but, like, the convertible stuff, the folding stuff, put away in sufficient uh, quantity that there is some real capacity and that the companies are required to make a commitment to rehabilitate. They should progressively rehabilitate they should not be allowed to put a mine on extended care and maintenance and just gradually walk away quietly as the, as the headlines mm-hmm. disappear. They should not be able to do these fire sales late in a mine's life where a mine with massive rehabilitation obligations and, and, and um, you know, uh, commitments is sold to a junior mining company for a, an amount of money that you'd probably get a coffee for in central Melbourne. Yeah, and they pay a deposit now, but that's obviously inadequate. Yeah, the de- deposit system, there's not a uniform system, and it, it, um, it, it varies from place to place. And there's an extraordinary um, example of, of where, you know, a public policy uh, issue gone wrong. In WA recently, they've, they've moved from a bond system, like similar to rental, money up front locked away. Mm-hmm. Now, we can argue about whether it was a, a credible... Um, assessment of enough money, but it was still money put up front and locked away for that purpose. It now moved to a mining levy, um, and as as a goodwill gesture with the mining levy, they gave back um, the bond money, uh, and the levy money is a non-refundable annual levy as opposed to a big chunk of bond. They gave back bonds, and some mining companies just said, beauty, that's a big chunk of money we never expected to see again, and here's our one-year levy, and now we're out of here. And they've moved from nearly a billion dollars in public held money for environmental rehabilitation to under one hundred million. They lost ninety percent of their of the capacity, which was already too limited. So, again and again, we're seeing situations where uh, enormous um, there's an enormous unfunded liability, and someone's got to pay. And if it's not paid, if it's not cleaned up then we do pay because there's environmental degradation, there's damage to the water systems, there's a whole range of long-running and sometimes takes a while to show, but very, very adverse impacts. And if you change it from a, a bond to a levy, there's no incentive for companies to actually... Companies that clean up who get their bond back and companies yeah. who clean up don't, if everyone just pays a levy, companies aren't yeah. rewarded for good behaviour. Yeah, it, it, it's... it's, it's there's real concerns about it on a whole range of ways, mm. on a whole range of ways, Meg. But look, one of the things is that the companies, there needs to be a very different approach. In, in Australia, for far too long, there's been this, this sort of fevered rush to announce a project, you know, mm. the hard hat photo opportunity for a politician. It'll be this mm. many jobs and we'll all be in clover. Mm. And that that part people really love to run to, but the sort of clean up part, the who cleans up after the party part, yeah. is is less done. So what we're hoping over time um, is for the mining industry to actually realise two things. One is that their social licence isn't a given. Mm. That people are going to say, if you don't clean up, if you come 
and use trash us and you sterilise future options, be they agriculture or kids being able to swim in the river or whatever, mm. um, we don't want you. So mm. that's an important check and balance. The other one, Meg, is that we reckon that there are massive opportunities in employment opportunities, skill and training opportunities in rehabilitation. Mm. You know, there's so many there's so many options in that are that are basically remedial works, earth moving, vegetation and monitoring. Um, that right around the country. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work here potentially for remote and regional communities, for Aboriginal communities, if they want to get engaged in this. There's real opportunities for real jobs that create real benefit and um, generate real money. And and Australia, I think, on a policy level, we need to think differently about the, the, the minerals or the mining sector and think more of a mineral sector and more of a closed loop, not just find it, rip it, ship it, mm-hmm. but like, you know... Find it, if it's appropriate, rip it, ship it well, mm. fix it up as best as possible and sort of look at closing that loop. You know, we need minerals and no, no one's jumping up and down. We're talking individual mining projects like a uranium mine. We don't see a role for uranium as product at all. Mm. But, we're, you know, no one is jumping up and down saying the entire mining industry must close. Mm. But we're saying that it cannot write its own rule. It cannot have a time of convenience when it picks up and walks out and leaves its crap behind as a public cost. Mm. And it cannot continue to exert $4 million per politician per year lobbying influence and then tell everybody else that they have no right to raise their voice. Yeah. I mean, an example is the recent sale of the Luoyang um, mine, I would think, isn't it? Um, where you know the the company that's had it for years has bailed out, a new company's got it, and they claim they're going to make money out of it over the next ten or fifteen years. So it's it's more coal, 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 and then it's got to be cleaned up. Well, one of the one of the disturbing trends is exactly that. There's um, uh, people come in and they say that there's a real there's a real reluctance in the mining industry to de- to detailed rehabilitation because they're concerned that that will sterilise a potential future resource. That's their language. Mm. Um, but so what happens is that a, a company comes in with a new technique or a new um, you know separation process or some variation on the theme, and they say we can turn a dollar on this, and then that can be used to pay for the rehabilitation. Like that, the Luoyang one's an example. Rum Jungle, a uranium miner uh, near Bachelor, mm-hmm. south of Darwin, is an example. There's just this rolling thing of we'll take over and we need to mine to generate money using this new technique, which we can then put aside to clean up the old mess which we inherited. And it's just like a intergenerational mantra. Um, sometimes it works. So, you know, you don't knock everyone on the head. Sometimes it actually works. You can, you can do that. But very often, all you're doing is like cat in the hat cleaning up the, the stain. You're, you're just spreading it further and wider. Yep. We're going to have to knock you on the head, unfortunately, because uh, we're out of well, time. Be gentle. Be gentle. We've done it again. Uh, you'll be doing a favour. You'll be doing a favour for some who'll be getting the media monitoring. But... You need your own show, Dave. Dave, um, look, we've only got two more programs this year, so we'll get back to you next year. But look, thanks for all your work and help for us this year as well. And Thank you so um, much. we'll talk to you again because it's not going to stop. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Okay. Thing and, and thanks for your work too. All the best. Thanks Cheers. a lot, Dave. Bye. Okay, Dave Sweeney there, who's with the Australian Conservation Foundation, anti-uranium campaigner, and obviously knows a lot about much broader issues to do with these issues. Mm. Okay, next week's transport, we'll be talking to John about, well, there's been approvals for two freeways this week in Melbourne. There's been a mm-hmm. number of things we can talk about. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure John will be happy to analyse all that It'll next week. And Meg, um, we'll be back next week. And yeah. thanks... Um, well, Andy, thank Andy for sitting there and waving his hand yeah, and g- keeping giving, an eye giving us the two-finger fi- two salute, which I think we had, meant we had two minutes to go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Say thanks or something, um, someone. Hey, cheers, yeah. everyone. See you next week. Yeah.